Welcome to Into Theology. I'm Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary. And we're looking at book eight of Augustine's Confessions, where it's almost like the climax of his story, where he is finally converted from the pleasures of this world to what is eternal, namely God himself, and finds rest there. And I think even at the beginning of this chapter, he has this whole thing. It's like, I don't want like all my desires necessarily to be changed. But I just want to be able to rest in you. Yeah. I just want to like be in you and stable. It's this movement from like this mixture of desires that go left and right and up and down. And he can't control it to the stability of, of who God is. And I guess part of the burden of this chapter is he's Augustine's not converted in the abstract, but he kind of like learns from how other Christians came to faith. These kind of like great stories of people denying themselves and accepting Christ. Um, and I think we wanted to read um, a section from it's book eight. Book eight, four, chapter, sec- chapter four, four section. section nine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we can, we'll read it and maybe we'll give the context afterwards. Yeah. So this is a, a, a lengthier reading. Uh, there's what, uh, about three paragraphs here. So you have to bear with me. But yeah, you're right. This is really a kind of a climax of the whole book where all these themes that he's been developing, things like, you know, uh, being too tied to earthly matters, worldly ambition, sex, and that sort of thing. Um, they're now all being kind of drawn together and he's going to meet God or God's going to meet him uh, in a garden in Milan uh, later in this book. Um, so I'm going to read here from book four, uh, sorry, book eight, chapter four, section nine. Um, so Augustine says here, uh, rouse yourself to action, O Lord, summon and call us, kindle and capture us, set us on fire, make yourself desirable to us. Let us fall in love. Let us run to you. Surely many people return to you from a deeper hell of blindness than Victorinus and draw near and are, and are, sorry, and are illumined when they are given light. And if they are given it, they accept from you the power to become your children. But if they are less well known to the congregations, even those who know them are less delighted for them. This is because when joy arises among many people, even as individuals, their joy is more copious because they fire themselves up and are also inflamed by one another. Furthermore, because they are known to many, they can influence many towards salvation, and they lead the way for many to follow. So also those who have gone before them rejoice greatly over them because they are rejoicing over more than just individuals. Heaven forbid that in your tabernacle, rich people should be more welcome than poor, or the well-born than those of baser origin. For you have preferred what is weak in the world to throw what, uh, what is strong into confusion, and you have preferred things that are base and scorned and treated non-entities if they did exist, so that you could bring them to nothing, uh, bring to nothing the things which do exist. And still that man who has the least of, was the least of your apostles, by whose mouth those words of yours resounded, instead of the former name Saul, now loved to be called Paul. This was the mark of a great victory when the uh, proconsul Paulus uh, had his pride conquered by that apostle's campaign, submitted to Christ's easy yoke, and was made a mere ordinary Christian of the high or citizen of the high king when the enemy has great control over a person and through that person controls still more people his overthrow is proportionately greater too he has more control over those who are proud because they have noble titles and through them he controls uh, yet more people who hold the power of political office so the heart of victorinus was regarded with all the more gladness because the devil had considered it as an invincible stronghold and the tongue of victorinus a terrible sharp sword for annihilating multitudes. 
it was right that your children should exult more plenteously because our king has bound the strong man and they saw his capacities taken away to be cleansed and made fit for your honor and becoming useful uh, to the Lord for every good work. Sorry, I stumbled through that a little bit. No, there. You, you know what's uh, funny when, when you're reading that, oh, you, you say what you're about to say at first. Oh, I know. Go ahead. Just one thing popped to mind is like, so, so basically if, if you hear that and you, and you know your Bible, like every sentence is, is, is scriptural, your tabernacle, blah, blah, blah. And it just made me realize like how impoverished we are sometimes when we are so focused on like, um, like when we ignore things like typology or just the kind of ability to use things in the old Testament as types of what's to come, because yeah. he can do it. He's just frequently referring to the old Testament for current realities. And uh, sometimes when you're so careful with that, you, you almost just lose the, that ability to talk in that beautiful scriptural language. Yeah. It's like when, uh, what are they, was it, uh, was it Spurgeon or something who said that if you cut him open, he bleeds a bit blind because it's yeah. just so suffused in scripture. That, that, that's the case when you read like Puritan and even early evangelical writings, it's just everywhere. And whether, and, and I mean, it'd be hard to like always push them. Oh, their exegesis here isn't so great, but like having, well, that, that's the kind of the modern critique yeah. you're, you're, they get pushed, but it's, it's more like just the beauty of the, the scriptural language, the ability to see all things kind of pointing upward and forward to Christ and the realities of Christ, the church and so on. Yeah. I just, I think it just makes you a, it, in, it lets you intuit scripture a little better. And yeah. like you have hooks in your memory to see how the tabernacle, how the temple, how the church, how Christ, how the spirit, which is the temple that we, you know, of God, how, how all those things correlate and connect. And it just it creates patterns in your memory that help you to own the Bible, to make it kind of your book. Yeah. By the way, I, there was a sentence I, I wanted to read before we get to the context of that quote, because sure. I was, I kind of butchered it before, but at the beginning of the chapter, Augustine says, my desire was not to be more certain of you, but to be more stable in you, which I think is uh, which, what I was trying to say earlier, but it said it poorly. Uh, I, just, uh, I just find that so fascinating because there's this stability in God because he's immutable, unchangeable. Yeah. In our changeable existence, where we want one thing tonight and another thing the next day. We're sad one day, happy the next day, tired one day, energetic. The next, like We're all over the place. But God isn't. And so yeah. he's a place that you can actually rest in. Which brings um, us back to the whole beginning of confessions itself when he wants right. to his rest in God because he's restless. Because he's restless. Yeah. Well, um, this, I mean, I like this quote. I think it's a helpful kind of way into mm-hmm. book eight. Um, you know, he's talking about a guy named Victorinus uh, multiple times here who has this kind of like crazy, we could almost call it a celebrity conversion, which we could probably talk about here in a minute. Um, and I think what it's doing too is it's um, it's really kind of helping understand or set the theme for really all of book eight, which I think uh, is just conversion. Uh, the whole book is is going to set us up now for Augustine's own conversion experience in the garden in Milan. And, um, uh, you know, the first seven books, a lot of his wrestling is with intellectual matters, particularly related to the, you know, his former Manichaeism and, uh, you know, trying to conceive of God as uh, having like spatial, you know, uh, existence, like almost like a kind of substance. And uh, what's interesting is when you read book eight, you don't get any of that stuff. Like there's no more intellectual wrestling. Uh, he seems to have now, cause he's been reading the books of the Neoplatonists, uh, you know, he's, he's now been broken of all that. He's like, no, I see this intellectually. 
Uh, but now he has these other more kind of heart related matters um, that he's got to deal with matters of desire. Um, so you see like the theme of ambition will kick in here pretty good that he's going to really like <clears throat> big issues is like, man, if I become a Christian, this is actually going to kind of ruin my career. And then he's also still struggling uh, in this book with like sexual matters and uh, his own sexual appetites and desires. And uh, those are the things he can't get past. It's like the intellectual stuff. Okay. I've dealt with it. Um, he'll kind of describe though, these other things as mere trifles that he, he of his own will can't get past. Mm. And, uh, and so Victorinus, who we talk about, is, is a kind of model for him of the kind of person that doesn't have the intellectual problems, um, but has got all these other considerations that Victorinus is able to get past and then become a Christian and get baptized, uh, whereas Augustine has to have these kinds of models, him, uh, right. St. Anthony, and some others that are going to help him. Kind of give him courage, like a cloud of witnesses, as it were. Yeah. It was like a rationale for like a guy of his stature, you know, and uh, it, it's such a weird, almost like apologetic here for the importance of really powerful, rich, famous people to get saved. Uh, it's almost like he's saying it, you know, in this passage I just read, it's like, it's harder for those people. That's why there's greater rejoicing. You're going to get crowds of people cheering because Victorinus got saved. Right. Uh, whereas like a lowly peasant, you know, people are like, hey, that's great. You know, uh, and he's and, he, and I don't even know if I agree with him. Uh, with the way he's describing, like, the importance, at least the kind of cultural importance of these sorts. Well, in Victorinus, like, he had, he actually had a statue built for yeah. him. Yeah, v- Victorinus is a big deal. Like, we we can read over his name and not really capture the, the idea that, like, no, no, this guy was a powerhouse. He was an intellectual powerhouse. I mean, wasn't, um, he was reading, Augustine was reading his translations yeah. of, um, like, the classics. Yeah. Yeah, and to, to such a degree that, I mean, could you imagine, I think you said this before we started recording, it's like, could you imagine like what the celebrities were like then compared to now? It's like, oh, he's a celebrity, he gets a statue in the Roman Forum, and one of the reasons why is because he did all these translations of classical works. Yeah, now, into Latin, like, from Greek. Yeah. So he's now, a mega like, genius, a, 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 a rhetorician. Yeah. Yeah, and then our, our Christian converts are like, you know, Justin Bieber and Kanye Con- West and... <laughs> I don't even know who else, but when he gets converted in the church is really funny. So, but you actually, no, maybe go back to it. You said he's kind of using these guys uh, as examples. Well, one of Victorinus's things is because he was so famous and so well-respected, he was afraid to identify with the church because he didn't want to offend and and maybe, you know, kind of read between the lines, lose his friends, which uh, does actually happen. People get mad at him for this, but he talks to um, a a senior priest named uh, Simplicianus. Yep. And he keeps saying to him, like, you got to go to the church and some, um, uh, and then Victorinus is like, no, no, no. Is a Christian just one who's in the walls? And his point was, do I have to go to like a church building, man? Like I'm on my own kind of like Christian, like retreat, dude. I don't need to do that. religious stuff. Watch it online. I'm good. I can just watch it online. But eventually, um, Victorinus reads scripture. So he's, he's a guy who translates his classical works, like the Platonists and so on. He's kind of a mega genius, but when he encounters scripture, he becomes convicted that he needs to identify with the church. So he actually goes to the, you know, goes down to the, to the river to pray. No, he goes to the church and uh, he's, he's the, the priest there say, well, you know what? If, if you're kind of worried about things, like you, you can confess the faith to us, which would be like the rule of faith. There's a rule there they would read, which is father, son, spirit and church. Um, you can do it privately 
And he says, no, I'm going to do it publicly. So he does a public profession of the faith, which would be like basically kind of like we're seeing the Nicene Creed, but it'd be a little bit different. Yep. And the entire church starts, uh, I think they, well, I'm assuming they fist pump, but they, they <laughs> scream out Victorinus, Victorinus when he yeah. gets baptized. So he's a huge celebrity and the Christians celebrate, but then of course others are, are, are miffed. I think that the devils are miffed that he would do that. So it's just kind of a really interesting event. And then the passage that you read, I think is fascinating because you, you can see that um, <clears throat> Augustine's using traditionally Platonic language, but showing that it is Bible all the way through. And that's the same th- uh, that, that really gets to the truth of things. And that's the exact same thing that Victorinus had where, um, you know, there's some things in Plato that kind of get you to God in Christ or some ideas, but it's really when he hits scripture, does he know that he needs to make that decision and, come to a fuller knowledge and a fuller association with Christianity. I think Augustine's making that same point. Plato's good and well. He's fun to read, but you got to get to the Bible at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. So what do you think celebrity conversions? <laughs> are they as important uh, culturally as Augustine is saying here? Or um... Well, I, I kind of wonder if it's less celebrity, but just like, moving stories of conversion like because the, the more well-known someone is the more moving is like because he even gets to a guy named um anthony of the desert who is a celebrity but in a different sense like he becomes a celebrity because he's such an extreme christian convert yeah he's walking by church one day and he hears someone preaching and the preacher says something to the effect of like give up all you have you know sell all that you have and come and follow me and he's like okay <laughs> <laughs> so he sells everything gives enough to his sister to support her and then he just books it to the desert and uh, lives a life as a monk battling demons and uh, meeting with people and cu- counseling them on scripture and things like that. So but I, I guess the point is it's not someone, I think it is celebrity, but it's not celebrity. Like in our sense, our days, celebrities are just vapid, famous people. I think these are well-known people that, that would be publicly accessible so that you could hear their story and be inspired to change. I think there's a slightly a, a different context. You think like, you know, say, take a guy, not like the, the kind of crummy sort of examples of a celebrity, like a, like a Bieber or Kanye or whatever. Um, but like, a, say somebody that people feel like they really know, like a Joe Rogan, right? So extended, you know, interviews in his podcast, you know, that can last up to three hours long. Uh, he's been doing this for so long. People feel like they really know him. He has like this kind of high degree of authenticity about him. Um, and then imagine he gets saved, right? Uh, or like Jordan Peterson, another one. Um, do we have like the same, like, do we think of them in the same way as we would think of like a Justin Bieber or a Kanye? Or is it different? Are they See, I think like, it's different. They're because... like a style. Like right. if, if Rogan gets saved, because everybody like, you know, how many millions and millions of people listen to him across the world that feel like they know him. And then it's like, right. he would get saved. It's like, Whoa, like that, that's different. Cause I actually almost tracked with the process and could, could almost think through this with him. Um, would right. it, I don't know. I wonder if the distinction is like celebrity who's famous for being famous. Like you think like yeah. an Instagram model or something where it's like, yeah. And then someone who's influential because they've got something to say. Yeah. So they're, they're both famous, but in different respects. And I think someone like Joe Rogan, I don't know that he's famous. He's not like a movie star in the same way that others might be. But people who listen to him kind of, they're influenced by him because he has maybe arguments or ideas and he's 
relatively humble. It's not really just famous for famous sake. Yeah. And that's where I think probably would it would be it would just be a greater access for the gospel to spread, I would say. Yeah. Um, it's true that God can work through anyone, but he also uses means. It's not like that's a problem. So I, I don't know. I guess I'm I'm less I don't think the celebrity thing where it's like celebrity for celebrity's sake I don't like, or just chasing celebrity isn't good. But if you have like C.S. Lewis was really well known through his writing, yeah. right? That's a good example. Books. But I wouldn't really consider him a celebrity like we think of celebrity celebrities today. Yeah, I, I mean, he was a celebrity, but not. I think Carl Truman makes a distinction, right, between somebody who's a celebrity and somebody who's a public figure. Okay. And, uh, you know, so Lewis would be like a public figure. Interesting. Um, everybody knows who he is. They read him and whatever. But he doesn't have that same kind of cash value in the way that a celebrity does where, you know, people aren't, you know, there's not crowds of people you know crying and throwing their underwear at them kind of thing that's a good you know, point like, yeah like the Beatles or Elvis and there's different things like even like you know there's a whole pastor celebrity thing where you have it's almost a different category but you have like the Mark Driscoll's which are like the, obviously like the the bad stories but then you have some guys like I think of like Tim Keller he, so he's kind of retired from pastoral ministry but because of his writing and speaking he's kind of become like a public figure you know like he doesn't seem to carry himself as a celebrity. No, no. Just kind of was like you might disagree with him or whatever, but like he, he's a public figure at least among reformed people, not among everyone. Could you imagine? By the way, I, I thought it was Tim Keller going on Joe Rogan. <laughs> I, I thought about that. I think that'd be great. It'd be a there's, fun conversation. Yeah, um, I think there's a number of people that he should have on there um, that I think would make for fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think Robbie George would be a really cool one. Uh, I think N.T. Wright would be a cool one too. And well, he had um, Bishop. Baron or whatever that guy is. I oh, remember. I heard, but I haven't heard that one yet. But I just I listened to it. It's, it's fascinating. Good. I mean, it, it, it's more the philosophical. Like he's just trying to explain, like who got philosophically. Seth, we just had Seth Dillon on from Babylon B. I don't know if you saw like the. Ah, uh, okay. I did. I didn't watch it or listen to it, but I, you know, I maybe saw a clip. We went around where they discuss uh, uh, abortion. abortion. Right? That was really well done. Yeah. yeah but, I think I heard a clip of it or, or whatever. So, but that's also not Augustine. So no. Like, um, what I'm just what I find interesting about that thing that I read there was that he's he you know he's it's like he's 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 setting Victorinus up as you know here's somebody who can provide a rationale for his own conversion, and at the same time he's almost like kind of identifying himself as a kind of Victorinus type you know like it's like uh, you know people are rejoicing over Victorinus's conversion because. It's got this huge cultural impact. More people might get saved by because of this one guy. So we're actually cheering on all those others as much as we're cheering him on. And then is it like, and then is he saying, and yeah, the same's kind of the true with me, <laughs> you know? And uh, there's almost like this kind of weird identification that he's putting himself with, uh, with the Carinus. Well, Augustine's literally the most famous Christian yeah. ever. Yeah, outside of. Or, or like maybe famous is the wrong word. Influential is another, a better word. Yeah. There's no doubt, and this book especially, you know. Yeah, it's it. Um, yeah, I think um, there's actually one line I I found really I want to read. It's um eight six thirteen. Okay. So I'll read it, and I'll tell you why I think it's interesting. Because the first two sentences there, it says, "Lord, my Helper and Redeemer, I will now tell the story and confess to your name of the way in which you delivered me from the chain of sexual desire, by which I was tightly bound." and from the slavery of worldly affairs. I went about my usual routine in a state of mental anxiety, 
every day I sighed after you. I used to frequent your church. And it goes on and on about groaning and so on. It just makes me interesting to hear that kind of language and think about his, uh, um, like, it reminds me a lot about with Martin Luther. And a lot of times people criticize the Reformation uh, about, like, imposing this anxious conscience on Paul that's not really present. And it's kind of like this Luther thing. Yep. And it's a key kind of new perspective on Paul. Sort yeah. Of thing. Yeah. And yet, uh, Augustine has a really, I mean, throughout this, you can tell his anxiety and he's beating himself up. He talks about that, I think, it might even be on the next page. Yeah, he's like talking about being in the fetal position, smashing himself in the head, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah, over it's not, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, he might not call it guilt in the same way that Luther would, but it's this idea that he cannot escape his attachment to pleasure. And what he wants to do is go full after God and to rest in him. But he's, he's just unable to get past that. Yeah. Um, so I just, I just want to, it's one of those things that's really funny to me. It's like, I, I'm not sure that Luther messed everything up. No. Well, um, everybody would say, well, he's just following in the train of Augustine. He messed everything up. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, well, Luther was an Augustinian monk. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of, yeah, it might be. Well, I mean, it's Philip. Philip Carey has a, a book uh, called uh, like Augustine and the Invention of the Inner Self or something like that, where yeah, I read that. Yeah, that's like, uh, that's, no, no, no. Sorry. I read it. He makes it probably the same argument. It's a different book on Luther, actually. Okay. But it's but Luther it's, and Augustine side by side. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and that makes sense. And uh, yeah, that's the first time where you get like a real interiority where Augustine is really going into his own soul in order to discover God, you know, through the image and stuff like that. And, uh, and he kind of invents this idea of like the interior self um, that, that will impact the rest of at least Western philosophy. Uh, and you're seeing it all right here, you know, right. <laughs> it's, it's the interiority of it all, um, both in himself and then the way he'll describe some of the others and what they go through too. Um, there's, there's a real kind of like psychology to this. Um, I like, I like a lot of the language, the language in this is like really like provocative, you know, uh, in uh, 510, uh, when he's taught, he says, but when your servant Simplicianus uh, recounted all this to me about Victorinus, I was on fire with enthusiasm to follow his example. Uh, and you get all this language of like fire and light and like the heart being inflamed and all that in this, in this, uh, especially in this book that makes it really kind of like intense, you know, uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of an Augustinian who will live in the what 17th century. If you read Blaise Pascal uh, and uh, his pensées, he's a lot of that same kind of real fiery type language. Um, here's my favorite prayer of Augustine's grant me chastity and continence, yep. but not yet. Yeah. And I think he prays that at, looks like around 19, if I can yeah. figure that out. Right. Yeah. Classic prayer. That's such a, like a dude prayer in college, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I definitely want to like be pure and everything, but like, like after college. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. That, that's such a classic, uh, classic quote, right? that's what he wants because there is really this this conflict that's happening that, that that's very pauline right it's the conflict between you know the the old nature and the new or like the soul and the body and uh, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and uh and so he's like i want these things i know that this is good uh, to be chaste to follow lady chastity um yet i can't do it yet and i don't want to and, that, and that's like he's using the language in, in when he's in the garden 
and uh, he's you know beating himself he says it's like he's having a conversation with these sins and they're saying to him like what are you gonna do you're gonna tell us to go away we'll never come back and he says like they cling at the garment of his flesh (laughs) and he and he can't get past them and Mm -hmm. that's why i think one of the most important lines in the whole of book eight is right near the end uh where he again he's picking up the language of conversion He's uh, and he says, uh, like in that final paragraph, right near the end, right before he talks about the rule of faith, uh, he says, uh, "For you converted me to you," uh, and he says, "Not to seek after another wife or any other worldly hope, uh, but to take my stand on that rule of faith on which you had revealed me uh, to her so many years ago." And uh, and and what a great line! Like, I can't convert myself. These are mere trifles, these things that are clinging at my flesh, and I can't do anything about it. I'm, gonna, I'm beating myself, I'm freaking out, uh, and yet it's God then who has to intervene and convert him, uh, you know, and, uh, and I, I think that's actually quite, that's key to, to understanding his conversion. It's also going to be key to understanding all of his later views on the freedom of the will. It's probably useful to note that seeking a wife here is part of his social climb yeah. it's not like oh i got converted so i'm not going to get married in yeah. general kind of because he had a concubine that um he had to dismiss in order to get married to be part of proper society he had an arranged marriage that um yeah, this I is guess didn't work out it was she was younger than Marian. he was too young to marry at the time yeah eating and holding back yeah which is interesting i think it's jason biassi if that's how you say his name he made a point i remember reading uh where he was saying that you know augustine often gets a bad rap for being kind of a sex obsessed um but in a sense here like what you're seeing is actually well really early on he takes a concubine and then he stays faithful to her until she's forced away by monica his mother she's not obsessed like uh, with sex like we think of it today yeah and it's like he's also then now he's he's of Mar- he's gonna he's gonna marry up she's not of marrying age yet and so he's waiting and kind of freaking out at the same time um and um so i don't know I, you I know what's interesting that, the ahead. struggles that he has we would probably identify with the average person today but yeah. the way that he talks about them as if it is as if he's like a porn adult sex addict but the right. thing is we we live in a particularly like um what's the simplest way to put this here i'll put this right romans one roman the punishment for sin is letting us sin more right and i think a lot of times people think okay god's going to judge a nation and that means uh, an asteroid comes but i think what it actually means is god just lets you go so there might be external prosperity so i think in the in the the world that we live now in in the west which is pretty decadent we have such access to like gross sin and depravity that we sometimes don't realize that like the simple sins that we do are, are really quite evil right. as, well, yeah. as well because we see there's such an extreme example over here that we're like oh i guess we're fine but augustine did all the sins that an average male does but viewed them like we view the worst of the worst yeah and uh Paul did that about himself too, actually. It's interesting enough. He thinks he's like the worst of all kind of sinners and all that kind of stuff. Or worst of all apostles, at least. Wait, no, chief. No, doesn't he call himself the chief among sinners too? Chief of sinners, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just an interesting perspective. I think um, we're maybe a little bit too therapeutic. We don't want to say that. We want to find some sort of explanation rather than um, just admit her guilt. But he does. 
let's let's before we finish, let's name uh, let's tell how he gets converted. Oh, but yeah, before, so, do the right. Romans thing that you showed me before first. Explain that how how okay. the whole chapter is. It's just interesting. So um, one of the great resources. Let me just uh, pull it up here. Um, I'm not a big fan of James J. O'Donnell's biography of Augustine. I think he actually pulls too much of the sex stuff uh, and makes it kind of all controlling. It's like, you know, O'Donnell gives a real Freudian read uh, to Augustine, which I mean, I can understand to a degree why you might want to do that. But the biography itself is almost irreverent. Um, But he has O'Donnell is also like the leading expert, one of the leading experts on confessions. And he wrote like a phenomenal uh, commentary on the text uh, that you can actually get at his website uh, at George uh, at Georgetown um, where he teaches. And so what he does is he kind of gives you these sorts of various types of breakdowns of the books uh, of confessions. And in, in book eight, he notes a couple of ways that it's kind of being organized by Augustine here. And one of the ways uh, he notices notes is that uh, book eight actually follows you, I think before we recorded it, what did you call it? Like the Romans road of uh, something, you know? Yeah, it's a Romans road. It's, it's like chapter one through 14, I think is. Yeah. So book m- one, much decided. Or sorry, book eight, uh, chapter one, section two corresponds to Romans 1, 21 to 22. And then he goes all the way down uh, so that by the time you get to 8, 12, 30, uh, it's Romans 14, 1. And like you can actually see uh, at key points along the way, um, major themes that hang off of, of, of the book of Romans. And so Romans is going to be very key to Augustine's own conversion because when he's sitting under that tree in the garden of the lawn, he hears that sing-song voice of the, of the child going by saying, tole lege, tole lege, pick up and read, pick up and read. It's the first thing to do, following the example of Antony, who does something similar, is to just go <clears> and become <throat> where he'd been reading in, in the Bible, which he had a, a, a kind of a bound collection of Paul's writings. And he says, I just kind of opened my eyes to, or set my eyes upon the very first words that I saw. And he probably had been reading earlier. So he, he yeah. got up to Romans 14. And- yeah. So he's, it's, it's Romans 13 uh, that he reads. And so Romans is, is really going to be so key. You know, he mentions Paul specifically uh, in, uh, in, in book eight here, uh, you know, going from Saul to Paul. So obviously this is like him really reflecting on what conversion is. Uh, as it's defined, I think, in the book of Romans. And he's shaping his whole conversion story off of that, uh, which I thought was really fascinating. I want to make a point that is slightly polemical, but um, throughout this whole thing, he's he's constantly alluding to scripture. And and Romans is, is a structural element of this whole chapter. A lot of times I find people read the church fathers like Augustine or even the medievals, and they're like, oh, they're not really biblical. But really that's a self own because it's a cell phone because they're so biblical yeah. they don't just have to quote the whole bible verses their speech is scriptural yeah. and so a lot of times i hear this they're like the fathers they didn't really read scripture well they did like allegory or they didn't blah 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 understand anything you're like that, that's a cell phone it just it means that you're comparatively not saying you're incompetent but compared to these guys i would be too incompetent yeah scriptures like, even like a, a near contemporary maybe even a contemporary cyril of alexandria before he became a pastor, he memorized the New Testament in Greek. Crazy. Like that was like his prerequisite. He went to like the desert and opened his Bible and memorized it. Yeah. And then he was like, oh, I think maybe I could be a pastor now. And then, then you read these guys and you're like, oh, they're unbiblical. It's like, no, it's because you're bad at the Bible. You can't see it. It's there. 
Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not excluding myself because I think I have lots to learn too. I'm just saying, but to be like much more careful because these guys, I, I don't want to make this weird like history thing. Like they're better than us. That's not the point. But like, I think just realistically, we're so distracted by modern life that we not few of us will ever attain to the Bible knowledge these guys had. Yeah. Practically yeah. speaking, I'm not saying there won't be exceptions, but we're so attuned to uh, with the, we spend a week doing our taxes. We have to like, you know, check Twitter every five minutes, like all the things that we have to do in the modern world means that we're not attuned in the same way. These guys could be to the 10 books they had, one of which would be the Bible yeah. where they could just own it in terms yeah. of memorization. And so then a lot of times we come and we think we're, we kind of kind of come in a haughty way to them because anyways that just it just bugs me so much and i see this especially in like the allegory debates you're like dude they're not allegory like allegory was actually scriptural it was what the holy spirit inspired and what they're they just know the bible so well so they're making the connections faster than you it's because you're a bad bible reader that's why you're criticizing them (laughs) that's a good Um, i just anyway sorry that was my polemical point i have to apologize because i'm canadian but it bothers me it's interesting that um you know, back with uh, Victorinus and, uh, you know, his whole idea of like, okay, I'm going to go public with this. There's a, there's a really cool line. Uh, it says, uh, where are we here? Um, in four, oh, sorry, book three. Sorry, good grief. Good grief. Yeah. What's a book, book three anyways? I can't remember that. Eight, three, uh, chapter three, section four, paragraph four. Uh, where it says, uh, oh, Lord, Lord, you have bowed the heavens. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, that's, that's actually an awesome line, too. It's right before that. So at the very end of, of, of chapter three, um, where it says, uh, over many years, the old man, Victorinus. Wait, did I, like, lose my page here? I must have. Uh, uh, I, think it's I had a line in it. Oh, here it is. I'm sorry. I totally botched that. I it's, like it. Uh, I'm, I'm really drawn into this part. Keep going. <laughs> book eight. But like, I lost my spot. It's book eight, book eight, chapter two, <laughs> paragraph four, <laughs> near the end of paragraph four, I think, um, where, where it <laughs> says he's, he's Victorinus and he's, and it says uh, he had uh, copied their pride in participating in these brass face in his vanity, shame face of the truth. And suddenly, unexpectedly, he said to Simplicianus, as he himself used to tell the tale, let us go to church. I want to become a Christian. Yeah. And uh, it says the latter could hardly contain his joy and off he went with him. Uh, so when he initiated in the primary sacrament as a catechumen, he soon afterwards signed up for the rebirth of baptism. And then it says the whole of Rome was stunned and the church was delighted. And it's like you, you're seeing like this interplay kind of like two cities again, you know, that he'll get into yeah. you got Rome, you got the church. And like the whole idea of like becoming a Christian is now I'm going to go to church. I'm making this public statement. And you then I just go, what they will say is his conversion is when he's actually baptized. Um, note that he's, he's baptized here as an adult believer too. But um, I just, I just, I, I find that interplay really interesting. And then the language that's being used here is I'm going to get saved. I'm just going to go to church. One of the, um, I would, I just realized, cause so context, I was reading up some time ago on, on Roman liturgies and how they joined the church. I just realized that the priest Simplicianus is probably his teacher as a catechumen and that's where they're meeting privately because what you would what you would do and we have records of this from the, like the late 100s early 200s and on is you basically go to a house church and you'd say like and you go to like a deacon you're like hey i want to learn from you and you might do that for up to like three years until finally you're ready 
say to be baptized. Um, and then finally you could do the full church service and take the Eucharist as well. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of wonder, it doesn't quite say it explicitly, but I wonder if that's part of what's going on here. It's that pre joining the church. It's yeah. like a new believers class, basically. Yeah. They last for like three years sometimes where our yeah. new believers classes last for like three Sundays. And it's funny because if you remember, he's he Augustine will chastise his parents like earlier on in the confessions. You know, he's he's basically kind of a catechumen from when he was a kid and then never got baptism. Yeah, young boy or whatever, and he's mad at his mom. Remember when um, uh, I think when his friend is dying and gets baptism, <laughs> Augustine. Oh yeah, he kind of mocks it, right? Yeah. And then, uh, but then he's mad at his mom for himself not ever getting baptized when he was younger and he was sick uh, and all this kind of stuff. And then now, now he's like, this guy, or this guy, Victorinus, he becomes a catechumen and he gets baptized, like, bang, you know? And what's so important here, and I think, it's interesting, so you're called a Baptist, but I think we sometimes miss this really vital point, is that, like, baptism, regeneration, church, like, membership, they're all, in Scripture, so tightly bound, that, of course, formally, theologically, you can distinguish spirit baptism and water baptism and so on, but the Bible rarely does that. And rarely do these guys in the early centuries need to do that. They don't feel the need to. Yeah. And I think we almost do because we have more anxieties about these things. But sometimes Baptists are almost bad. Like they emphasize the formal distinction. Yeah. It's like you can't just be like fine with like, yeah, you're baptized by the spirit and just like say yes. Right. Yeah. Because the, the, the Bible does. And again, yeah. I'm not denying the distinction. I'm not saying you can't do that. And I think it's there. But we're, we're so like worried about the theological division of those things that really in the in our experience you don't have to know right like can, can you just can you remember oh the moment the spirit hit me and the moment the water hit, like usually for most people there's they're tied together right in a movement of faith it might be over a few weeks but you know what i mean yeah i think it's cool too here uh i think i've kind of picked up on you know in the in the earlier parts of confessions he gets he's almost like disappointed kind of bummed out with ambrose that ambrose always kind of keeps him at arm's length right uh yet simplicianus here who's a rock star he's a senior yeah. priest under ambrose and becomes yeah. the bishop of milan and so and we, we always kind of take it for granted that oh like ambrose is augustine's spiritual father i bet you there's a good argument to make here that simplicianus yeah. is too, <clears throat> not the spiritual father Remember, simplicianus is like he's hanging out a, with them he's talking to him and know, but he's also a theological rock star he's friends yeah. with the big wigs in rome yeah. he's read all the philosophers when augustine's like hey i've been reading um Plotinus and Porphyry, Simplicianus is not like, ooh, he's like, great, because a lot of truth slips in. But then he's like, let's get to the Bible too, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or why well, he doesn't quite he doesn't say that, but th that's kind of the implication there. Because so should uh, I should we read the garden scene? Uh, yeah, do, do, let's finish there, the whole totally legay thing. Yeah, we'll finish well, let's finish too quick with just like a little bit about Monica right at the end there. Okay. Uh, so where where should we because it's it gets kind of like piecemeal. So he he picks up with um well in 1228 he goes under the fig tree yeah and then 1229 is is where he hears the kids so maybe because we've already summarized what happened so he's in milan he's with his friend they're reading scripture he's guilt-ridden or whatever yeah and he gets under a fig tree which is kind of like in my view it maybe symbolizes it's right here oh the yeah of course the reversal no of, yeah the language of Genesis. Of, yeah, Genesis and Adam and the garden. And also, like, we've got to keep in mind his own... Um, his own know, original sin, which is the, the pear tree theft. Thing in the garden. So he's, well. It seems to be, you know, like Revelation has a tree at the end. Yeah. And 
Genesis has to treat the beginning. So the pear tree is his original sin. This is his re- renewal, yeah. his regeneration. And so I think there is um, there is imagery there that's kind of poetic and beautiful. And again, he's just so used to the Bible that it's just there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't um, think he denies the historicity of the fact that he actually was under a tree. Oh, no, I think he's there. I'm just noting, yeah. like, he's just, he sees things and, like, he views the word, like, it's, I know it's a big word. He views the word sacramentally. The world is a sign that signifies God's glory and his providence and his beauty and God's at work. So, anyways, I, I would say look at, maybe just read um, 1229. Okay. Kind of summarize what happens afterwards. 1228, he's saying, you know, he's like, I'm dragged by my complete wretchedness. Uh, Business of weeping was better suited to solitude. So I withdrew. He says, I cast, you know, cast myself upon the ground beneath a fig tree. He's asking God how long, using language of the Psalms there. Uh, And then in 29, he says, these are my words. And in grief of heart, I wept bitterly. And look, from the house next door, I hear a voice. I don't know whether it is a boy or a girl singing some words over and over, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it, or tole lege, tole lege in Latin. Mm-hmm. Immediately my expression transformed because he's been in this like psychological fit. All right, he says, I started to ask myself eagerly whether it was common for children to chant such words when they were playing a game of some kind. I could not recall ever having heard anything quite like it. I checked the flow of my tears and got up. I understood it as nothing short of divine providence, right? So this is God uh, orchestrating everything Mm -hmm. uh, that I was being ordered to open the book and read the first passage I came across. I had heard of Antony, how he had been challenged by a reading from the gospel, which he happened to encounter as if uh, what he was reading was being spoken for himself. Go sell everything you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heavens and come follow me straight away. That Oracle had converted him to you in great excitement. I returned to the place where Olypius was sitting uh, for when I stood up, I had put down a volume of the apostle that's Paul uh, down there. I snatched it up, opened it and read silently, which is interesting because you remember he notes that Am- uh, Ambrose was silent reading, which was actually not a common practice in the ancient world. So I read silently the first chapter that oh. I on, not in partying and drunkenness, not promiscuity and shamelessness, not in fighting and jealousy, but clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no position provision for the flesh uh, concerning its physical desires. I neither wanted nor needed to read further. Immediately, the end of the sentence was like a light of sanctuary poured into my heart. Every shadow of doubt. That's again, Luther, right? So great. I want to note one thing. So basically, he praised the Psalms, uh, language the Psalms anyways. How long? Why now? He asked all these questions of God and God answers by providence. Yeah. He, he uses like, natural means exactly the Bible verse that he wants, you know, um, and he goes right to the Bible verse. And he, what's his great struggle? It's with the, the, the desires of his flesh. And oh yeah. Good point. Yeah. It's 13. The exact <laughs> verse he needs to read. I kind of, I, I have to wonder like how many of us have missed God's answer to prayers because we're so unattuned to Providence. Well, I think too, like I, I do this right where like some strange thing happened. This is really weird that at this moment it would happen. I'm like, Oh, yeah. I feel like I'm like reading tea leaves here. I need to like, no, of course God doesn't do this. It's well, why wouldn't he? I mean, he, he takes Augustine and bang, puts him in the garden. He hears a song that he has no idea where it came. He means it. He's at pains to tell us. I don't know this song. I don't even know if it's a boy or a girl. I just heard it. Uh, and uh, it's God that was orchestrating the whole thing. And yeah. then it's like, where did I open my eyes or set my eyes on the exact Bible right. verse I needed. And it's like, why wouldn't God do that? You I know? don't, yeah. What's well, funny, I think it's like Isaiah 27 versus God teaches the farmer. Well, how does he teach the farmer from the first farming 22? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Look to the ant, Proverbs says. Why would we look to the created order of things? Why would this? Why would the uh, the heavens declare the glory of God? Why would we have things to learn there? The interesting part, because of God's providence, He's He's revealing Himself continually through nature, and also, of course, Scripture. I mean, that's both here, right? Yeah. But anyways, I just I just find it so interesting that I think sometimes, as you know, like we're probably so unsensitive to God's providence, and Augustine was, of course, attuned to it, that we don't. We don't, God's answering our prayer right there. We just don't notice it. Yeah. We were so, we're so materialistic. We just think, okay, that happened. Random, weird. Yeah, weird. You know, it's, what I like too is like, you know, I, I highlighted at the end uh, where he says, you converted me to you. But yes. when he finishes talking about the example of Antony right here, what I read, he said straight away that Oracle, that passage from Matthew 19 had converted him to you. Mm. parallel so god saying or augustine saying you converted me to yourself and then when he's using speaking of antony who's use it is used as this great example for him it's the oracle it's the word that converts antony yes. and then what is it that converts augustine it's the scripture it's romans 13 you know right. it's the scriptures and so it's it really cool how he does that and then at the end he kind of describes monica as having a kind of conversion right which i i think is a great way to end this whole thing uh, he said, after he says about at the very end, last paragraph near the end uh, of the whole book, uh, he says, for you converted me to you, I'm not to seek either a wife nor any worldly hope, but to make, take my stand on that rule of faith, regular fide, on which you had revealed me to her so many years ago. And you converted her, that's Monica, you convert, converted her grief into joy in a way much more fruitful than she had desired and much more precious and pure and she used to look to uh, for from having uh, grandchildren physically begotten by me. And he's like, she got a new understanding in his conversion, right? She wants to be a Christian. She wants to get married, have kids and all this kind of stuff. And yet he has this more profound conversion experience that gives her deeper seated joy. Mm. That's going to set us up then for like her coming death in the next book. Uh, but she gets a conversion from kind of like. Spoiler alert. Come on. Like, mediocre expectations, maybe. Uh, to right. like a deep-seated joy in her own son's conversion. That's good. That's the conversion of Augustine. So next week we have the last chapter of the, of almost like the story portion. And then yeah. chapters 10 through 13 are like, if you want your mind to blow up kind of. Yeah. Where does this come from? Time, <laughs> time and memory and creation. And, yeah. Yes. Uh, that's good. See you next time. Bye. Cheers.